You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. With your Bibles open to 2 Peter chapter 1, let's bow before we begin our study. Father, it is our desire that as we look at your word that we may be convinced in our inner man at its value, its preciousness, the treasure it is that you have given to us, that we may become convinced of the sufficiency of Scripture for all of life and godliness. And so as we learn from your word today, teach us these things in contrast with the teachings of other false religions, religious systems, and works of men. We pray that we may love you because your word has directed our hearts and inclined our hearts to love you and work within our lives and our hearts obedience as we trust in you and in your word and say with confidence that we can trust and rely upon the promises that you have given to us and what scripture teaches us. Convince us of the authority of your word and the sufficiency of it, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Second Peter chapter 1. Last week we did something of an introduction to the subject of the Protestant Reformation and the differences that exist between Protestants and Catholics, and we saw that the Reformation issue comes back to the answer to this question, how is a man made right before God? Ultimately, at the heart of the division between Roman Catholics and Protestants is not a difference in our style of worship or our use of candles or whether we wear robes or it's not a particular flavor of Christianity. It comes back to the fact that Protestants and Catholics would give different answers to this question, what must I do to be saved? How is a man made right, made just, or declared righteous in the sight of God? It is the issue of justification by faith. And when we talk about justification, we are talking about a declarative act by God, the Father, concerning our standing before Him and the guilt that we have for our sin. So when we talk about being justified, we're not talking about making excuses for sin as if we are justifying sin, but we are talking about the act of God whereby He says, of the guilty sinner, while that guilty sinner is still in a sinning state, the Father says of that sinner, righteous, not guilty. So that before the bar of God, in terms of the the claims of divine justice on that sinner for all of his sins, past, present, and future, The Father says concerning Him, not guilty. As if all of the charges in the divine courtroom have been dismissed. That's justification. That's half of justification. The other half of justification is that all of the righteous deeds of Jesus Christ in His obedience to the law of God and to the Father are credited to the account of that sinner so that the Father not only says not guilty, but the Father says He is righteous as if you and I, while believing in Christ and still in a sinning state, not yet glorified, as if we had done all of the righteous deeds that Jesus Christ did, and as if we had acquired or attained and practiced all of the righteousness that Jesus Christ did. We are seen in the presence of God as righteous. That's justification. Now, ultimately, if you walk up to a Roman Catholic or a Protestant and you ask the question, how does that happen? What is the nature of that justification? It's not just, how am I justified, but on what, on what basis, what is the means or the basis, the credit upon which this justification takes place? That is at the issue. And not just that, but what is the nature of that justification? Can I be unjustified 
and then justified, and then sin and be unjustified, and then be justified, and then be unjustified, and then be unjustified unjust, off the edge of the stage? Is that, is that how my life is supposed to go from one phase of justification to unjustification? And, and then I die in, in, in a totally uncertain state as to whether or not my standing before God is right or it is not right. Is it, see, that's how what a Catholic would say. Now, a Protestant would say, you are justified on the basis or by God's grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. That's simple. We're we're not justified or declared righteous because of anything that we have done, but solely and only and entirely because of what someone else has done in our stead, in our place. A Roman Catholic says, well, your justification comes when God infuses or injects a little bit of righteousness into you, which righteousness you then nourish and, and baby and sort of work along, and then by your works of penance and indulgences and avoiding sin and confession and enjoying the sacraments and going to Mass and being baptized and being married and maybe becoming a monk and then a, a Catholic priest, by all of these things, then you can add to your justification. And at the end of the day, when you die, you're never quite certain exactly how long it is that you're going to spend in purgatory. Because when you die, then you have to go into purgatory and be cleansed or purged of all of the guilt of sin that still remains upon you because of your venial sins. And we saw last week that those are two entirely different answers. Now, why is it that Roman Catholics and Protestants give two different answers to that very same question? It is because both Protestants and Catholics have two entirely different sources of authority. That's what it boils down to. Let me illustrate it by giving you a, 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 by giving you a, a question and answer in a bit of a different scenario with some different religions. Okay? Say you were to walk up to a Muslim and say to a Muslim, how is a man made just before God? How is a man made righteous before God? That Muslim will give you an answer that comes out of his source of authority, the Quran or his imam or, uh, or whatever teacher that he is following. Uh, he will give you an answer to that question that is in keeping with whatever he views as his source of authority to answer that question. If you walk up to a Mormon and you say, how is a man made right or just before God? The Mormon will give you an answer that is sprinkled with some Bible verses and some doctrines and covenants and some Pearl of Great Price and some Book of Mormon and some teaching of the, of the Mormon church and some teachings of Joseph Smith, some teachings of Brigham Young, because all of those things the Mormon views as their sources of authority. So it boils down to this. Tell me what your source of authority is, and I will tell you how it is that you will answer that question. How is a man made right before God? So we are dealing today with this subject of the sufficiency of Scripture. Is Scripture alone our source of authority? And, and this is illustrated, that the importance of this issue is illustrated from an, from an incident in the life of Martin Luther. I mentioned last week that in 1517, October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church, at the castle church door there. For the next several years, uh, Luther debated in a number of different locations all of the Roman Catholic priests and different scholars, etc., um, at first, when Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the door of the church, the Pope kind of dismissed him as just sort of a, you know, those are the ramblings of a drunken German monk somewhere up in, in Germany and didn't really take it seriously. But Luther's teachings and his booklets and his writings were distributed widely with the help of something that was at that time a very recent invention, that was the printing press. Gutenberg had invented the pr printing press, which allowed the teachings and the pamphlets and, and the writings of Martin Luther to be disseminated quickly and very widely. And Luther became something of a hero, and after several years of hearing of Luther's debates and, and, uh, and his teachings, the Pope realized that he couldn't ignore this German monk any longer. 
So the Pope sent Martin Luther what was called a papal bull. And it was an official document signed by the Pope, and this happened in late 1520. It's an official document signed by Pope Leo X that said to Martin Luther, you are to recant, you and your followers must recant of all of your teachings and all of your books, and you have 60 days to do this publicly and forcefully, and if you do not, you will be excommunicated. That was at the end of 1520. Now Luther responded to that paper, papal bull with all of the subtlety of a train wreck, and he walked outside of the gate at Wittenberg and burned the papal bull publicly and pronounced an anathema upon the Pope in the process. So on January 3rd, 1521, Luther was officially excommunicated by the Pope and summoned to appear before a council, what was called then a diet, was a, a sort of an inquisition of sorts, but it was a, all of the leadership of the Roman Catholic, not all of the leadership, but leadership of the Roman Catholic Church and imperial leadership from the, from the Roman Empire. Uh, they were all sort of summoned there to Worms, the city of Worms, and Luther was called to appear before them. And the intention was that when Luther stood before this diet, this imperial collection of people, that Luther would be pressured into recanting. Now, as a man who had been excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church, you would think that in every city that Luther stepped foot into, that he would have been hunted and hated and, and uh, rejected by the people, but that was not the case. On April 2nd, Luther left Wittenberg for Worms, and in every city that Luther walked into, he was greeted with the applause and the approbation and the love of people. His, his teachings had circulated widely, and he was a well-known individual by that time within only four years of nailing those 95 theses to the door. And so he was greeted with something of a, of a hero's welcome, as it were, even in the city of Arms itself. And he arrived in Arms on April 16th, and it was to appear before the council on the following day. And Luther stepped before the council, and it was his thinking, he was assuming, that he would be given the opportunity to defend his position and to explain his position and even debate those who were there. That's what he went there to do. But it became obvious to Luther very quickly that they had no intention of debating. And they asked him two very short questions. They had at the front of the room on a table laid out Luther's writings, his books, his pamphlets, etc. And they asked him, Luther, are these your writings? And they say that in a voice that was barely audible, Luther said, all these are mine and I've written more besides. And then they asked him the second question, do you defend what you have written, or do you wish to reject a part of it? And Luther didn't know how to answer that. If he says re reject what, he believed that everything he had written was true. In fact, some of the things that he had written, Rome would affirm. So do you reject? How do you reject? Which ones do you reject? What parts do you reject? What are they talking about? Luther had no idea how to even answer that question. So he asked for some time to think about it, and they granted him overnight until the next day. So the next day, he appeared before the Diet again, and they asked him the same question. Luther, do you recant of your writings? And Luther tried to defend himself. He tried to explain his position, and one of the people who was there inquiring of him said, Martin, answer me straightforward. Do you reject what you have written or do you defend it? And they pushed the issue. And that is when Luther gave that now famous statement before the Diet of Arms. He said this, quote, Since then your serene majesty and your lordship seeks a simple answer, I will give it in this manner, not embellished. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradict themselves. I am bound to the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot 
And I will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. And with that, it is said that Luther put up his hands in the symbolic gesture of a victorious knight and walked out of the room. Throwing up your hands was the mic drop gesture of Luther's day. That's what he had done. And he knew at that point that he had drawn a line in the sand that would forever mark a, distingu a distinguishing point between himself and the Roman Catholic Church. And after Luther walked out, they pronounced him a heretic, they condemned him as a heretic and a criminal, and they put a bounty on his head, a bounty that remained until the day that Luther died. Wow. Now that's a stunning moment in the history of Christianity. But I want, what I want you to notice and to hear is what Luther appealed to. Did you catch it? Three times? Unless I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture, or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, seeing that they have erred and contradicted themselves. Now that was nothing that anybody of that day could, could refute. Everybody knew that popes and councils had contradicted each other, that they had been in error, even though they claimed infallibility. And Luther said, I am bound to the scriptures I have quoted. My conscience is captive to the word of God. For Luther, what was the source of authority? It was scripture and scripture alone. Not popes, not councils, not traditions, not dogmas, not anything that the pope would publish, nothing else. Scripture and scripture alone. Ultimately, that is the, and was the source of authority for the Protestant Reformation. Now, when we talk about the Protestant Reformation, I'm going to introduce you to two terms. We use the term formative principle and material principle. Last week, without even knowing about it, we talked about the material principle. And in a couple of weeks, Jess is going to give an exposition of the material principle. Here is the material principle of the Protestant Reformation. It's justification by faith. When you think of material principle, you need to think in terms of the matter of the issue, what it is that mattered at the heart of it. What was it that they were debating? What was the big conflict over? It was justification by faith and faith alone. So that was the matter or the material principle at the heart of the Reformation. But then there was another principle called the formative principle. And by formative principle, we mean the principle that forms the perimeter of the debate. What it is that forms the issue at hand. How does a man come to the conclusion that we are justified by faith and by faith alone instead of through all of the works of indulgences and penance? What is it that forms that position, that conviction, that biblical teaching? It is the conviction that Scripture and Scripture alone is the authority for answering that question. So that is our subject here today as we're going to be looking at an, our exposition of 2 Peter chapter 1. You can, see how now, how, you can see now how this is a formative principle and an important principle to have right at the beginning of the debate. Because if you, ask, if you, had, if you could sit in on a debate between Luther and some of his critics, Luther would have said, look, Scripture teaches that a man is declared righteous on the basis of faith and not the works of the law, Romans chapter 4. And then the Roman Catholic cardinal or bishop could just say, but the Pope teaches that. So now you have two statements, but you can't even agree on whose teaching should be authoritative. Or, or the Reformer would say, but... But Scripture says that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And that is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. But tradition says, the church councils say, the church has always taught. You see the conflict? If you're appealing to Scripture and to Scripture alone, and yet the other person that you're discussing these issues with does not appeal to Scripture and to Scripture alone, you have no common ground upon which to discuss the issue. That is why the Reformers took a step back, as it were, and said we have to lay out the terms of this discussion it is sola scriptura, and this is where our five solas of the Reformation come to. We begin with Scripture, and Scripture alone is the authority. So let us go to Scripture and to Scripture alone and see 
what it says about itself. Second Peter chapter 1. And there is some irony in the fact that we are turning to a book written by Peter, who Rome says is the first pope, to learn a lesson that, <laughs> to learn a lesson that is obviously contradicts what Rome says. Second Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 3 and 4, and then we're going to be looking at verses 19 to 21. And I'm going to give you a quick overview of everything that is between those two passages. Because at the, at the top and at the bottom of this passage are these statements regarding the sufficiency and authority of the Word of God. And in between are things that are connected with that issue. And in chapter 1, Peter is laying out his case of what his source of authority is to what we look, to what we appeal in dealing with false teachers, whom he deals with in chapters 2 and chapter 3. Now, this book is written toward the end of Peter's life. Uh, he is aware of his impending death, which you see in verse 14, where he says, Knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. There Peter is referring to the fact that he, he knew that he was at the end of his life. This is Peter's final, his last epistle. And so knowing that his life is about to come to an end, Peter is writing this to his readers. He is warning them about false teachers in chapters 2 and 3, but then he is sort of setting the stage in chapter 1 by talking about Scripture. Now verse 3 says, after the introduction of verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Verse 3, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these, that is, for by His glory and His excellence, He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. All right, now verse 3 is addressed, and this epistle is addressed to believers. They are the called ones. And Peter says in verse 3, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. By God's power, by His providence, and by His power, He has given to those who are the called, according to His purposes, He has given to us everything concerning life and concerning godliness. Everything. Everything you need for life, everything you need for godliness, God has granted it to you. This is a statement of utter and total, complete sufficiency. There is nothing lacking from what God has provided for us for our life, or for our godliness. So if you're talking about this in terms of just uh, the spiritual life that we have that is the, the beginning of our regeneration and us coming to know uh, Christ through faith in Him and being born again by God's, by God's work, if you're talking about the giving of that life, God has provided everything you need for that. Provided everything you need. Where? Verse 4, in His precious and magnificent promises. And not only that, He has given to you everything that you need for life. Everything that you need to make decisions on everything under the sun, He has given it to you. Everything that you need to walk in obedience, to walk in holiness, to mortify sin, to grow in Christ-likeness, everything you need to make every decision you will ever need to make has been provided for you in Scripture. He has given to you a complete and perfect and all-sufficient reservoir of divine truth through, verse 4 says, these precious and magnificent promises. So what has been given to us? Where, where do you go to get this truth? Where do you go to find this store of sufficient knowledge, sufficient revelation? It is in the precious and magnificent promises of God. Where do you search? Where do you look for precious and magnificent promises of God? Church tradition? Councils? Popes? Me? Your neighbor? Latest blockbuster? A new book that's just published? Where do you go to find the precious and magnificent promises of God? Peter would say you go to Scripture. 
Now, between verses 5 and verse 16, there are two sections that also point us back to Scripture. You'll notice that verses 5 through 12 deal with different virtues and character qualities that Peter wants to see his readers implement in in their lives and develop in their lives. And you see them listed there beginning in verse 5, diligence, um, faith, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. Now, those are the virtues that we are to develop and that will ultimately aim us toward fruitfulness in our Christian life and Christ-likeness. What has God provided for you so that you might develop those character qualities? What has God given to you that might work in conjunction with the ministry of the Holy Spirit to develop those virtues in your life? His precious and magnificent promises. It is the Word of God that sanctifies us and conforms us into Christ's likeness. And that is what Peter is appealing to us in verses 5 to 12. Now in verses 12 through 15, he speaks about his death. And he is pointing them back again to what he has written and back to Scripture again, knowing that the laying aside of his earthly tent is is imminent. Just as Jesus had predicted, Peter knew that he was going to die. He knew that the end of his life was coming. And so he points his readers back to not experience and not any other source of authority, but Scripture and Scripture alone. So then in verse 16 through 18, Peter talks about a magnificent experience that he had. His own private personal revelation that was only... Uh, only two other people were privy to this revelation. Verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised table, fables. Sorry, I tried again. I don't know what version. I was just reading the one in my head. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. In other words, as, as He is dying, aware that He is about to lay aside His earthly tent, He is reminding His readers what we as apostles have passed on to you is not the meanderings of the mind of man. It's not a cleverly devised tale. It's not something that the Greeks dreamed up. It's not a rehash of an old mythology. It is none of those things. Instead, Peter says, we were the eyewitnesses. We, being apostles, were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Now, Peter has one particular occasion in mind, verse 17, for when, we received, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made known to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. What incident is that? What incident was it that Peter was an eyewitness to when he heard from the glory of heaven, from the Father himself, an audible voice that said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He is describing an incident in Matthew chapter 17, I think it's also recorded in the Gospel of Mark, what we call the transfiguration of Christ. Matthew chapter 17. What Peter saw, and only Peter, James, and John were taken up onto that mountaintop. What Peter saw was the veil of the humanity of Jesus pulled back just enough that he could see a glimpse of the coming glory of the kingdom. He saw a glimpse of the divine majesty, that eternal divine person that is the Lord Jesus Christ, that is veiled in human flesh. Peter got to see that as that glory was put on display. And Peter saw that. Remember, he saw Elijah and Moses having a conversation with Jesus on that mountaintop. Only three people got to see that. Peter, James, and John. That was what I experienced, Peter said. Now look at verse 18. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. Now that is quite an experience. I think it is difficult to overstate how transformative, how incredible, how life-altering that experience would be. That personal divine revelation. Peter doesn't talk about here, when when he's talking about being an eyewitness of something, he doesn't appeal to the resurrection of Christ. Remember, there were over 500 people who saw that. 
That wouldn't necessarily put Peter in really unique company. But the transfiguration does. Only three people got to see a preview of the glory of Jesus Christ. Peter, James, and John. We were eyewitnesses, Peter says. I heard this voice with my own ears. But that is not true of all of Peter's readers, is it? No. Only Peter, James, and John had that experience. James was dead. Peter was about to die, and Peter is not writing to John. The people to whom Peter is writing had no such experience. So to what then would the people of Peter's day, the next generation of Christians, to what would they look for assurance and knowledge and truth and understanding and sanctification? Could they, could they look at an experience that they had on a mountaintop where they saw the glory coming? No. Could they look at an experience they had where they saw the risen Christ? No. Peter says, we don't see Him, yet we believe. So they had no even remotely similar experience that they could claim as a basis for their understanding of truth and their assurance and what might bring them sanctification. They had nothing comparable. So to what does Peter point them? Verse 19. So we have the prophetic word made more sure. Now, in verses 19 to 21, this is Peter's passage on, on the inspiration of Scripture, and I want you to notice two things. I want you to notice, first of all, that Peter describes here the, the reliability of Scripture. We have the prophetic word made more sure. That word sure means verified, certain, reliable, dependable. And it is in a comparative sense that Peter is using this. So he says we have the prophetic word, the word of the prophets made more sure. More sure than what? More sure than what? What is the prophetic word more certain, more reliable, and more dependable than? Personal private revelation, verses 16 to 18. It's more certain than that. Peter says, here's my experience, unparalleled. Only two other people had this experience. I know what I'm talking about. I saw what I saw. I heard what I heard. I am an eyewitness. I am an earwitness to these events. I heard that divine voice from heaven, an audible voice from heaven say this. You have the prophetic word made more certain, dependable, and reliable than even that it is more dependable than the experience or the private revelation. Peter doesn't point his readers to some personalized private revelation or an experience or any other source of authority, but back to Scripture and to Scripture alone. The prophetic word is made more sure to which we do well to pay attention. It's more certain than a personal revelation. Now let me ask you a question. What would you rather hear or have? Would you rather hear an audible voice from heaven that is the Father's voice himself, or would you rather read the book of Amos? Your answer to that question will tell me a lot about your view of Scripture. What would you rather have? Peter says, the book of Amos is better. What would you rather have, an audible voice from heaven or read the book of Leviticus? If you say, I would rather have the written word than an audible spoken voice, you are probably among less than 5% of all Christians in this country, if not around the world. And that statistic, that fact, that not five out of a hundred Christians would say the written word is better, tells you everything you need to know to diagnose the health of the evangelical church worldwide. Because most people would say, give me the audible voice anytime over the written word. Peter says, I had this experience. Only three people had this. The written word is better. I hope... I pray, I strive every day. It is the goal of every 
elder and teacher in this church that every person here would be able to say, give me the written word over any experience, any private revelation, any, any conjurings in my head that I might have. Give me Scripture, and Scripture alone is my source of authority. Would you rather have Amos or still small voice? Most Christians would take the still small voice any day. And that is a pathetic testimony to what we have to deal with in our present situation. This is Peter's doctrine of inspiration. Look at in verse 20. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, and this is the second thing I want you to notice, not only the reliability of the prophetic word of Scripture, but the inspiration of it in verse 20. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This is, scripture, this is what Scripture says about itself. So as Christians, when we affirm the inspiration of Scripture, we say this is a divine book. This is the voice of God. This is itself the written Word of God. Every last jot and tittle of it is that, the written Word of God. And we say that. We're not affirming something of this book that this book doesn't teach. This book teaches that this book comes from God. That is the testimony of Peter regarding all of Scripture, that it is inspired by God, and it is not the product of human will. This is not the musings of men. This is not a record of times that God has spoken in the past that we're supposed to learn from. These aren't the writings of men that God chooses to use from time to time. This is the voice of God. In this book, when you sit down and you read this, you are reading the voice of God, the very breath of God, the product. And and God used these human instruments, moved them along, directed them, their life's events, their thinking and everything, so that when Peter sat down to write his epistle, he was writing exactly every word what God wanted him to write. God so moved in those men as to produce the product that he intended to produce. That is Holy Scripture. And that is true of Peter and Paul and Matthew and Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi, Joshua, Moses, all of them. All 66 books of our Bible. Some are more exciting than others, yes. Uh, Some are more engaging than others, yes. But they are all equally the product of divine inspiration. That is Peter's doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. Now Paul's is similar. And I'll just remind you of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That is Paul's statement on the sufficiency of Scripture. You are equipped by Scripture, for every good work. How many? Some good works? Most good works? Every good work. There is nothing that you need that has not been provided in this book. Absolutely nothing that you need that has not been given to you by divine inspiration so that you could be equipped, tooled for every good work. Everything you need for life, Peter says, everything you need for godliness has been given to you in the pages of Holy Scripture because men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God so that the product is exactly what God wanted. And it is all sufficient and it lacks nothing. Now I want to contrast this with the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. Now that we've gone through the passage, we see what Scripture has presented. And I would point out something to you. This is important to remember this. 2 Timothy was written, 2 Timothy, yeah, 2 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul. It was his last epistle. Written weeks, probably days before his execution. And in that epistle, the Apostle Paul pointed his readers back to what? Scripture. Second Peter was Peter's last epistle, written weeks, probably days, before his execution. And in that epistle, the Apostle Peter pointed his readers where? Back to Scripture. Neither Paul nor Peter, both of them aware of their impending deaths, pointed his readers to 
tradition or to a church council or to a descendant of Peter or to another vicar of Christ or a representative in Rome or any other source of authority. These men who were the founders of the church, who were the, the people through whom Scripture was written down, those men pointed their readers not to other sources of authority but all the way back to Scripture itself. The dying words of the two greatest apostles at Fontes to the book, to the source. This is the Word of God. It is everything you need. And with that, they gave up the ghost. Now let's contrast that for just a moment with the Roman Catholic Church. The issue here is the sufficiency of Scripture. Is Scripture the sole and only authority that dictates to us what we believe and how we live? Now, Rome will not deny that the Bible is necessary to know God. They don't deny that. They affirm that. You need the Bible to know God. What they deny is that the Bible alone is sufficient for us to know God savingly. Just as they do not den deny the necessity of grace. Rome doesn't deny the necessity of grace. The Reformation was not over whether or not grace was necessary. The Reformation was over whether or not grace was sufficient, whether grace alone was necessary. Rome doesn't deny that faith is necessary. What Rome takes issue with is the fact that the idea that faith alone saves you. Rome does not deny that the death of Christ was necessary. They affirm that. It was necessary. What they deny is that the death of Christ alone is sufficient to save you. See, it is that word alone. That's at the heart of the Reformation. Thus the five solas. Scripture alone. Grace alone. Faith alone. Christ alone. To the glory of God alone. What sticks in the craw of the Roman Catholic Church is that word alone. If we could do away with that, we could have perfect unity with Rome. But on the basis of Scripture, we cannot do away with the word alone. And thus it separates us from the Roman Catholic Church. Now here, let me define for you what we mean by Scripture alone. Here's the definition. We maintain that the Scripture alone is our authority. That's, that's it in one sentence. We maintain that Scripture alone is our authority. Scripture alone is the inspired, infallible, inerrant rule that must govern our faith and practice. It alone is the authority that must dictate what we believe and how we are to live. The rest of that statement just explains that first statement. We maintain that Scripture alone is our authority. Now, here's what we do not mean by that. We do not mean that only that which is found in Scripture is true. That's not what we're saying. We're not saying only what is found in the Bible is true. There are all kinds of things that are true that are not recorded in Scripture. The, the formula for discovering the area of a triangle is true, but you're not going to find it in Malachi. You're not going to find it anywhere in Scripture. Okay? The, how much... Uh, um, the atomic weight of an element, of helium or oxygen or whatever it is... Now those are common. I shouldn't get into those type of illustrations and combinations, but it, the, the atomic weight of an element is something that is true, but it's not revealed in Scripture. There are all kinds of things that are true that are not revealed to us in Scripture. So, we, but anything that Scripture, anything that contradicts Scripture, is not true. So there are things that are true that are not revealed in Scripture, but anything that contradicts Scripture is not true. The second thing we do not mean is that Scripture tells us everything we need to know about everything. Scripture doesn't do that. Scripture doesn't tell you what you need to know about filing your taxes, doing a brain surgery, removing a tumor, uh, clipping a hangnail. Scripture doesn't tell you everything that you need to know about everything. Scripture tells you everything that you need to know about what Scripture tells you. Everything that you need to know. Not everything there is to know. Everything you need to know is revealed in the pages of Scripture. Scripture was not given to tell us how to remove a tumor or how to make root beer or how to put together an apple pie. Scripture was not given for those purposes. Scripture was given that we might know God savingly through Jesus Christ, that we may come to faith in Him, that He may 
uh, that he may sanctify us in holiness and conform us to the image of Christ and ultimately bring us to glorification, that we may learn how to mortify the flesh and mortify sin and walk in holiness before God. Scripture was given for that purpose, and for that purpose it is utterly and totally and completely sufficient. And you need nothing else revealed to you other than what is in Scripture for all of life and for godliness. That is what the sufficiency of Scripture means. It doesn't mean that teachers are not necessary. They are. It doesn't mean the Holy Spirit is not necessary. He is. He works in conjunction with those things, with Scripture, and Scripture alone. It is our sole authority. Now let's contrast this with the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. I talked last week about the Council of Trent, which was convened in 1544 and went to 1563. And in that council, by the time that council had been called in 1544, it was obvious that the Reformers were arguing, not from popes and traditions and the teachings of the Catholic Church, but that the Reformers were arguing from Scripture and Scripture alone, and that that was the sole source of authority. So Rome convened the Council of Trent in 1544, and they came out with various statements on justification and authority of the Church, etc. Here is the statement that they have regarding the Scriptures and the authority that we are to appeal to. From the Council of Trent, they say the Gospel, quote, also clearly perceives that these truths and rules are contained in the written books and in the unwritten traditions, which, received by the apostles themselves, the Holy Ghost dictating, have come down to us transmitted, as it were, from hand to hand. Following then the examples of the Orthodox Fathers, it receives and venerates with a feeling of piety and reverence all the books of both the Old and New Testaments, since one God is author of both, also the traditions whether they relate to faith or to morals as having been dictated either orally by Christ or by the Holy Ghost and preserved in the Catholic Church in unbroken succession. Now this delineates the distinction between Protestants and Catholics. You say, what is the source of authority? And the Protestant says, the Scriptures. You ask the Catholic, what is the source of authority for what we are to believe and teach? And they would say, the Scriptures, plus tradition, plus the infallible teaching magisterium of the Church. Three sources of authority. The tradition is the unwritten word. This is the written word. The tradition is the unwritten word. The infallible teaching magisterium of the church tells us what to think about tradition, what tradition says, and what to think about Scripture. That is the Catholic position. So you hear it even in that statement there from the Council of Trent. Orthodox fathers received and venerate with a feeling of piety and reverence all the books, both of the Old and New Testaments, since one God is the author of both. Also, what? The traditions. Having been handed down, hand to hand, dictated by Christ through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, and then invested with the church. Those are the traditions that have gone all the way back. That's what they would say. From Vatican II, which was held in January of 1959 under Pope John XXIII, they write this, Quote, it is clear, therefore, that sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and the teaching authority of the church. I'm going to stop right there for a second. Do you hear all three of them? Sacred scripture, sacred tradition, and the teaching authority of the church, quote, in accord with God's most wise design, are so linked and joined together that one cannot stand without the others, and that all together and each in its own way under the action of the one Holy Spirit contribute effectively to the salvation of souls. Close quote. Now, don't miss what Rome said, 1959. Sacred Scripture, sacred tradition, and the teaching of the church contribute effectively to the salvation of the souls. One cannot stand without the other. So from the Roman perspective, if you don't have the teaching magisterium of the church and tradition, Scripture itself is not enough to save 
you, to give you the knowledge necessary for salvation. That is official Roman Catholic doctrine. John O'Brien, who was a Roman Catholic priest, wrote this, quote, Great as is our reverence for the Bible, reason and experience compel us to say that it alone is not a competent nor a safe guide as to what we are to believe. Close quote. Scripture alone is not a competent or safe guide as to what we are to believe. Henry Graham said this, and he is a Roman Catholic author and priest, quote, Venerable and inspired as Catholics regard the Bible, great as is their devotion to it for spiritual reading and support of doctrine, we yet do not pretend to lean upon it alone as the rule of faith and morals. Along with it, we take the great word that was never written, tradition, and hold by both the one and the other, interpreted by the living voice of the Catholic Church, speaking through her supreme head, the infallible vicar of Christ. Close quote. The Catholic Catechism, page 82, says this, quote, The Roman Catholic Church does not derive her certainty about all revealed truth from the Holy Scriptures alone. Both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. Close quote. Both the Scripture and tradition must be received and honored with equal piety and reverence. See, that's two sources of authority. So here is how it works. Scripture says this, but the Roman church and tradition say that this is how we view Scripture. Now, how do we know that the Roman church and tradition are authoritative alongside of Scripture? Well, the church tells us that tradition is equal to Scripture. How do you know the church is an authority? Well, because tradition tells us that the church is equal to Scripture. So tradition tells us to trust the church, and the church tells us to trust tradition. See how that works? And so we have the written word, and then we have that great unwritten word, tradition. Can't you just hear Tevia fiddler on the roof? Tradition. No matter what it is that they say, no matter what it is that they teach, it must come back to tradition. I'm not trying to mock here, but this is the bottom line. If you take the teaching authority of the church, what the church says and what tradition says, and you just take Scripture and Scripture alone, Rome would not be Rome. There would be no doctrine of the virgin birth of Mary or her sinlessness or her perpetual virginity, the doctrine of the Mass, the vicar, the idea of the vicar of Christ, the leadership structure of the church at Rome, the, the idea that there is a, a re-sacrificing of Christ every week on the Mass and the altar, uh, what they get out of communion, what they say about baptism and, and penance and indulgences and purgatory. None of that can be proven from Scripture. None of it. None of it comes from Scripture. All of it has to come from tradition and from the tradition given to us and contained in the authoritative church. If you have Scripture and Scripture alone, there is no basis for any of the Roman Catholic doctrines that separate Protestants from Catholics. None whatsoever. That is why Scripture and Scripture alone is so important. And that is why Rome rejects Scripture and Scripture alone. They did it at the Council of Trent. They have to, and they still do it today as official Roman Catholic position because without tradition and the church, they don't have any of their doctrines that make the Roman Catholic Church the Roman Catholic Church. So now I ask you, do you believe in the sufficiency of Scripture? Today, inside of modern evangelicalism, and I'm just going to bring all of this to our, our environment today. Today, inside of modern evangelicalism, there are all kinds of attacks on the sufficiency of Scripture. Most Protestants countenance these attacks without ever batting an eye or, or winking or even realizing that it is going on. 
And even within Protestantism, there is an undermining of the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. I'm going to give you just a bunch of illustrations of this. I'm going to explain some of them in a little bit, and I, I don't have time to go into all of them. If you have questions about any of these issues, come up and talk to me afterwards or submit the question for the Q&A that we're having in November. Okay? But here are the different ways in which Protestants today undermine the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. Number one, the belief that God is giving to us private and personalized revelations through promptings and nudgings and still small voices and little feelings that I have in my stomach or that I'm hearing the audible voice of God. No, you are not. God is not speaking to you outside of Scripture. God is not giving to you private and personal revelations. He's not nudging you and prompting you in any kind of a divine, uh, authoritative, inscripturated sense. And the idea that you need to listen for those things or tune into those things or pay attention to those things because God will or must or does guide you in that way, that is entirely unbiblical fiction. Everything you need is given to you in this book and God is not communicating anything outside of this book. So look to this book, to Scripture. You need nothing else. All of that is fictional. It's nonsense. Sarah Young, in her book, Jesus Calling, has made millions of dollars undermining the sufficiency of Scripture. Because in her book, in the introduction to their book, she says, I had the Bible, I had the Word of God, but, these are her words, not mine, quote, I longed for something more, close quote. And so Sarah Young started receiving these personal little privatized revelations, words of Jesus, that she quotes in a quotable sense. She put them in the book so that she could sell them to you, and you could hear what Jesus said to Sarah Young. These are the words of Jesus that she is purporting to give to us. That undermines the sufficiency of Scripture. You don't need Jesus Calling, or Jesus Today, the next book, or Jesus Forever, or Jesus Next Week, or Jesus Not Calling, or Jesus Wants to Call, or whatever her next book is going to be. You don't need any of those private revelations because you have everything you need in Scripture. So toss it in the garbage. It's useless. Go to the book. She seeks to undermine the authority of the sufficiency of Scripture. The whole idea of the New Apostolic Reformation and the charismatic movement, which believes in prophets and modern-day visions and dreams, which are authoritative, where God is doing a new thing and revealing new doctrine, that undermines the sufficiency of Scripture. You don't need that. As, as John Owen once said, if your private revelations contradict Scripture, they're wrong. And if they agree with Scripture, they're unnecessary. So what do you want out of it? You have the Bible. What else do you need? The whole notion of heaven visitation, heaven tourism, is another undermining of the sufficiency of Scripture. As if we were all sort of sitting around saying to ourselves, I wonder if heaven really is for real. I wonder if there's some source somewhere that might tell me that heaven is for real. Some book written by somebody who might be an authority on the subject. And then along comes a little four-year-old boy. And he says, hey, heaven is for real. And we're all supposed to say, Shazam, Gomer! I had no idea. I'm so glad that a four-year-old boy can come along as an authority on the subject and confirm for me that heaven is for real. And the popularity of that book and 90 Minutes in Heaven and Jesus Calling and Jesus Today and Jesus Tomorrow and all the other nonsense, the popularity of that is evidence that Christians today long for something more than Scripture. We are not convinced that Scripture is enough. We're not convinced of it. I think most people in this congregation are. But the church across our land is not convinced that Scripture is enough. We don't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. We certainly don't act like we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, though every single church probably, in order to be taken seriously on any front whatsoever, would affirm vocally, oh, we believe the Bible is sufficient. And then the pastor will get up and talk about a vision that God gave him for the church. As if this is a new personal revelation. 
that undermines the sufficiency of Scripture. The whole modern psychology movement that plagues the church today, where pastors send off troubled people with, with personal issues to some pagan psychologist who has a degree from a community college, who's darkened in his mind, darkened in his understanding, hates God, hates the truth, doesn't understand the truth, doesn't know Scripture, doesn't know anything about the human condition except what he might glean by just simple observation that you and I can get away with, as if he is the authority on the subject, as if he has something that Scripture cannot provide for us. And just in case I haven't yet quite offended everybody in the congregation yet, or everybody hearing my voice, I'll give to you one more example of a ways that evangelicals undermine the sufficiency of Scripture. When you hear someone say, yeah, I understand what Scripture teaches about that, but I have always believed tradition. I believe that, I, I see what the text says there. Yeah, it's, it's right there in black and white in front of me, but my church has always taught, or my family always taught, or my daddy always told us. See, that undermines the sufficiency of Scripture. Whenever you hear anyone talk about any rival authority to the Word of God, that is an undermining and a rejection of the sufficiency of Scripture. You either believe that God has given to you everything that pertains to life and godliness, or you don't. That's it. That's the dividing line. You either believe that or you don't. If you don't believe that, you agree with the Roman Catholic Church. It's just a matter of what you regard as an authority equal to Scripture. If you agree with that, then there are certain implications. And it would take me a whole other message to go into the implications of this doctrine, and I'm not going to do it, but I'll just rattle some off for you because I don't want to leave it without giving you the implications of it. If this book is sufficient, it's to be read, it's to be memorized, it's to be obeyed, it's to be loved, it's to be cherished. It is to be preached. Expositorily. The Bible doesn't need some clown going through a midlife crisis to stand up in front of everybody and try and gussy up Scripture to make it look like it's appealing and, and authoritative and, and great and connected to some TV series or some movie franchise in order to make people like it. It doesn't need to be dressed up. It doesn't need to be made to look apparent, irrelevant. It doesn't need to be made to look beautiful. It is beautiful. It is God's Word. This is the voice of God. It just must be read and proclaimed before the people of God. You don't need to hear stories from my life. You don't need to hear any of those things as the basis or authority for how we are to live or what we are to practice. The Word of God must be read. It must be taught. It must be preached. It must be cherished. It must be memorized. It must be defended because it and it alone is sufficient. And here is the implication for you. Everything you need for life and godliness, God has given to you. Every last thing. To know Him, to know Jesus Christ, to walk in faith, to walk in obedience, to live in holiness, to be conformed to the image of His Son, to put to death sin, everything has been provided for you. There, there's nothing new out there that you need for anything connected to your entire life or your entire pursuit of godliness. It is enough. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent word. What more can He say than to you He hath said, to you who to Jesus for refuge have fled? Let's pray. Father, your word is authoritative. It is beautiful. It is wonderful. It is precious to us. We pray that you would make it even more precious still. We believe and we say that we believe in the sufficiency of your word. I just would ask for the grace to live in obedience to that conviction and to be able to identify around us all of the things that compromise our belief and our affirmation of the sufficiency of Scripture and to reject it. It and it alone is authoritative. For holy men moved by you spoke and gave to us the word of our living God. We thank you in the name of Christ. Confirm these words to our hearts, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. 
If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.